You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It's Tuesday, September 26th. This is The Christian Commute, and here is what happened. You guys are probably wondering where I've been. So, I did a show last Tuesday, and I said, I'll be back Thursday and Friday. What happened was this. My wife had to go to the pulmonologist on Thursday. So, because she had a doctor's appointment, I had to stay home to get the kids off the bus. So, I worked from home. Then, Friday, I had to drive all the way to Birmingham, or Chelsea, or, hold on, Silicaga, or whatever far-flung place I was in. So I was like, I don't want to drive to Dalton and then drive back from Dalton and then drive to Birmingham. So I'm going to work from home again. I mean, I really only come to the office just to say that I work here because, I mean, today, nobody from my department was here until 10 o'clock. And then it was one person. And then I talked to her, but I didn't really need to. So... I just told the boss, can I work from home? And I did. So, because I worked from home unexpectedly, there were no Christian commutes. So, here I am back Tuesday. Listen, the only, I think really the only reason I come to work anymore is so I can record a Christian commute and eat at a different restaurant. Like one that I can't eat lunch at in Cartersville. Those are the reasons. For example, today I ate at Olive Garden, which opened this weekend. I have long lamented that Calhoun didn't have a proper Italian restaurant. You guys know I worked in Calhoun for almost eight years. I'm going to tell you, Calhoun is just a backwater place. It just is. You can't buy a youth tennis racket at the Walmart. There's nowhere to get a straight razor shave. Of course they don't have an Italian restaurant. Of course they don't. But I thought Dalton, center of industry that it is, would have a proper Italian restaurant when I came here. And you know what? They don't have a good barbecue restaurant in Dalton, and they don't have a good Italian restaurant. They don't have an Italian restaurant at all until like last week. They got this Olive Garden. Also, another place opened that's, you know, Olive Garden is chain Italian, just kind of like chain Chinese. Not the real thing. I get it. A legit Italian restaurant opened up in Dalton, and me and my buddy went there, and it was like, oh man, really? You're gonna, it's, it's like $22 for a tiny plate with no side and then no bread. And I'm like, I'm not coming here. I'm, Olive Garden's gonna put them out of business. So I finally got my proper Italian in Dalton. And now here I am driving home on the Christian, because I, I drove to work today. So I could eat at Olive Garden and do this podcast. I hope you appreciate it. And it's real late. It's 6.15. Someone from the marketing department who doesn't know me asked IT for a report. And they said, oh, you know, don't, I, I need this, but don't worry about it. I, I asked IT, and I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to make your report just for spite. I'm going to make a better report than I think IT made. I don't know what they made, I was like, but I think I can do better. So I stayed late just to finish that report. I'm like, Greta Thunberg, how dare you? I'm the, this is my whole reason for existing in my job that I don't even really need to drive to is to make these little reports. If nobody needs the reports, why am I here? So I overkilled a report for somebody and sent it to him. So now I'm going to drive off to the soccer fields to watch my kids practice. I guess I could go home and do the dishes. Now I'm going to go watch them practice. So let's get to today's full show. It's called Pulpit and Pin Behind the Scenes. I'm going to give you a couple updates on some things I'm researching, like how do the few and far between investigative articles at Pulpit and Pin come out? Where do they come from? What do I do to make sure uh, I'm fulfilling the mission of Pulpit and Pen, but also doing good work? I have a question in the inbox about 
keeping your wife accountable. And it's from Jeff. And what's funny is Jeff called and he left a voicemail. And he said, you're probably, you're probably watching Alabama. And I, I remember getting the call while I was at Brian Denny Stadium. Like, is this, who's calling me from Florida? And I was like, yes, not only am I watching Alabama, Jeff, I am sitting in the stadium watching Alabama. I went to the Alabama Ole Miss game in between my son's soccer games. And, uh, what well, you know, in between the days. I only got to go to half of the game because of some confusion between the central time zone and eastern time zone. But Alabama won. They won 24 to 10. I did not have a pick from Brother William this week because I didn't do the shows on Friday, so I didn't have a Brother William pick. I doubt either Brother William or me would have picked Alabama 24-10. We might have picked them to lose. I didn't, they, was, they were six-and-a-half-point favorites, and I didn't think they'd cover. They did. They did everything they could to lose the game in the first half. But it's sort of like one of the Alabama teams of old that has just stifling defense and terrible quarterback play. And I'm talking about old, old, like Mike Shula era Alabama, like Joe Kine's defensive coordinator and then Spencer Pennington trying to play quarterback while Brody Croyle is on the sideline with a torn ACL. It was funny because you, there, there is a delineation of people in Alabama. I don't know if you call them have or have-nots, whatever you want to call it, between the blue collar and white collar when you get down there. And one of the little soccer teams we played was the preppiest little boys. I was like, look, it's a bunch of little Brody Croyles out there. Little preppy Brody Croyles. Look at you. And Brody Croyle is good at sports, but they weren't. And we, we slaughtered them. So that's what's going on. Matthew 25. We continue in Matthew 25 on today's Bible chapter review. That's verses 10 and 11. We're still in the parable of the ten virgins, the prudent virgins and the imprudent virgins. And I better drive slow because I see the state patrol pulling somebody over. We covered the first part of the parable Tuesday, one week ago. Now we're going to cover the application of the parable, the end of the parable. If you'll remember... The virgins, five of the virgins, the imprudent ones, ran out of oil and they fell asleep and they did, they couldn't light their lamp. So the prudent ones said, we can't loan you any oil because we wouldn't have enough for ourselves. You go buy it. And while they were going away to make the purchase, that is the purchase of oil from the dealers, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the others... The other virgins, later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. That's the application of the parable. So the virgins, the ten virgins, are the people expecting the return of Jesus. Jesus is obviously the bridegroom in the story. And no one knew the day or the hour he was coming. And five of the people are living their life for Christ, quite obviously. Because the Lord knows them. Five of the people, I would say they nominally nominally know the Jesus. Nominally, nominally know the Jesus. Nominally follow Jesus. Nominally know the Lord. They say they do. Hey, they're in this wedding party. But they fell asleep waiting for his return. And the door was shut when it was time for the wedding feast, and they were not let in. The bridegroom said to them, Truly I say to you, I I don't know you. And wouldn't you be, I don't know ancient Near Eastern culture about this, but wouldn't you be sort of insulted if you were the groom at a wedding and the bridesmaids didn't bother to show up on time for your wedding procession and they show up at the reception hey sorry we're late forget you I don't know you letting you you think you're my friend you're not my friends you if, if you honored me and cared about me you would have been there when I arrived but instead you fell asleep and didn't have enough oil 
for the procession in the dark. So that's the application there. Jesus is saying, you don't know when I'm coming back. Again, he says, you don't know the day. You don't know the hour. So who are you going to be like? Are you going to be like the prudent virgins who were prepared? Or are you going to be like the imprudent virgins who didn't show that level of preparedness and expectation? And I mean, that's, I don't know you. I don't know you. You're not getting in. I think in, in this eschatological context, is the New Jerusalem. We see elsewhere in the Bible the wedding supper of the Lamb. This future event when Jesus comes back. Who's the bride? The bride of Christ is the church. So it's similar imagery there. And Jesus, as we know, has other parables where I do not know you. He does not know the imprudent virgins who are not prepared for his return, whenever that may be. Now let's go to the inbox. Do you have a question? Even if it's during Alabama, call or write the email. Do you have a question about Christian apologetics or theology? If you do, send it to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. That is SethDunn88 at gmail.com or you can dial 470-315-0875 that is 470-315-0875 the Christian commute is your theological roadside assistance this one comes from Jeff in Florida ooh and before I before I cover this somebody else wrote me not with a question but to remind me that Jenny Allen, which was the preacher lady from that Auburn football baptism event that we talked about, I said, I don't remember this woman. I can't place her. And he, that, I was reminded by somebody who wrote in and said, Jenny Allen is the founder of the IF gathering. So huge red flag there. The IF gathering would have people, it did have Jen Hatmaker. I think it's had Christine Kane and Beth Moore and Priscilla Shirer. But Michelle Leslie has an article on that if you just want to know about the if gathering. But Jenny Allen, mark and avoid. Don't know what she talks about. Don't know what she preaches about. But it's a lady preacher who hangs out with Jen Hatmaker and Priscilla Shirer. What more do you need to know? Back to the question. Jeff, making reference to 1 Timothy 5 and Titus 2. And he's, he asked, how do husbands hold their wives accountable for being workers at home? Workers at home. So in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is addressing widows. And he says, old widows, and those are the ones who are too old to marry and bear children, they need to be put on the list. And we don't know what this list is, except we assume it's the list of people the deacons are going to go take care of, you know, give food to, mow their yard, even though I don't think they mowed yards back then. Stuff like that. People who need assistance. People who are, if you will, on the dole being looked after in church. They're not expected to work. But he says younger widows need to get married. And he said they need to be keepers of their household. They need to get married and keep a household. Lest they just become idle and malicious gossips. In other words, these women need something to do. And in Titus 2, we see Paul encourage the older women to tell the younger women, you guys need to be workers at home keeping house. That's from Titus 2. Titus 5 is it's talking about young young widows. It's not talking about young women, young widows. Because the, the assumption at the time in the culture is that a young woman's going to get married. So we're talking about somebody whose husband has died. What she's supposed to do? Well, get married again and go back to what she was doing when she was married, which is keeping a respectable household. Managing her household rather than doing nothing. Jeff gave the example of Peggy Bundy sitting around eating bonbons. 
I think that that's a, a hilarious example. But yeah, it's pretty appropriate. Like, how do you know if your wife is sitting around like Peggy Bundy eating bonbons? You know, what do you do? Ho- hopefully, you're more of a biblical man than 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 Al Bundy. If you guys remember, that's a show from a lot. It's a raunchy show too, because I, I that was not a show we wa- watched much in my house, married with children. But it's a popular show, and I think everybody from that era is is uh, familiar with Al Bundy and Peg Bundy, which satirized the life of people who got married uh, not for love but for necessity. And in Al Bundy's case, he got Peg Bundy pregnant. And then now this is what their life is, married with children. Anyway, how do you make sure you don't have a Peg Bundy? And he refers to these two scriptures. So first, Jeff, let's understand the scriptures in context. Like I said, 1 Timothy 5, that's verse 14, is about what is about widows finding them something to do so they're not busybodies going around gossiping. Plus, they might be burning with uh, passion because they're women with sexual needs and they need to be married to a man lest they go out causing trouble. And what is the opposite of them going out and gossiping and being idle and sleeping around? Managing a household that they have with their husband. And we have direction not to younger women, but to older women in Titus 2 to keep the younger women in line to say, hey, look over their shoulder. How you doing in managing your household? What is managing the household? Managing the kids. Keeping it clean. Keeping it orderly. Making sure the finances don't get out of whack. You would never see this on TV anymore, but do you remember uh, I Love Lucy? And Ricky, Lucy didn't work. And when Lucy didn't have kids and Ethel didn't have kids, what they always got into some kind of shenanigan. They weren't managing the household well because they were idle. And it was hilarious shenanigans that have entertained us all. Uh, but what, what happened? Ricky gave Lucy an allowance. Here's your money, Lucy. You need to manage the account and manage your life. Lucy wasn't good at that. But I went even further back than Peg Bundy. I was dead. I mean, I wasn't dead. I'm alive. I think that Lucy and Ricky had stopped making the show. And I think Ricky Desi Arnaz was dead before I was born. But I remember watching that show in syndication. But how do we keep our wives accountable if they're not managing the household well. <laughs> Anybody want to have that conversation with your wife? Anybody want to roll in from work and say, hey, you haven't really cleaned this place up. The, the kids' clothes are stacking up. Uh, you haven't paid the bills. You know, we don't have groceries in the house. You're doing a poor job of your Christian lady responsibility of managing the house. You'd be managing the couch if you came in and said that. But you, listen, that's a conversation a husband needs to have with his wife to keep her accountable. Now someone will say, that was a different time. That was a different era. And in that era, it was the husband who went out and worked and even and even today, he wouldn't be like a W-2 employee like he would have been then. But it would have been the husband going out to do the manual labor and managing the big business. And the woman would be the one who was tasked with the domestic responsibilities. And now women go out and work just like men do. But let me introduce you to a reality. And I can use my own life as a reality. My wife and I actually work for the same company now. When we had kids, my wife stopped working after the third kid. I shouldn't say stopped working. She stopped being employed after the third kid. I stayed in the workforce to support our family. Because daycare for three kids is about what a 25 and 35-year-old woman would make, the cost of that. I don't understand why women with three kids work full-time. Maybe a woman, if they've got like a grandparent or an aunt or a sister to keep them for free or at a very low cost. 
But there's a lot of women out there who work and pay for daycare and they're basically working for the sake of working. They're bringing home maybe a half or a quarter of their pay. Uh, just why, Wouldn't you like it better to stay home and take care of your child? I know my wife did. Anyway, my kids are almost all in school now, so they don't need to be as watched as closely during the day. Plus, we have six and we need more money. So my wife went back to work. Who do you think makes more money? My wife, who didn't work for 10 years, or me, who had 10 years of work experience? Of course, it's me. I make a lot more. And that's a situation for a lot of people. When you have a man and a woman who never send the woman home to take care of the kids, you end up with an income disparity, even if the wife works. So somebody might say, we're not in that situation anymore. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. And even if both, both parents are working, somebody's still got to manage the house. It's not like it doesn't, it's like not going to get done, and we can't, we're not all Mike and Carol Brady who can afford to hire Alice to do it. Wouldn't that be nice? Look at the classic TV being uh, referenced here on the Christian commute today. I love Lucy, the Brady Bunch, and Married with Children. And you can see, by the way, as time marches on, and the shows get less and less wholesome, don't they? So you can't just say, well, the context was this. No, listen. This is, this is how the world is set up. Women are the helpmate of men. That's how it is. That is woven into the fabric of biblical anthropology. It is ro- woven into the fabric of mankind. Men and women, and we're set up that way. That's just how it is. Some may feel that I have not made a strong enough case for saying... This is not just some ancient context. We have to still apply it. Fine. But I do believe this still applies. I don't think we can, we can just say, oh, that's how it was back then. And if Paul was around today, he'd probably tell men and women to do something different. I don't think he would. And by the way, going back to Jeff's example, Peg Bundy didn't work. Lucy didn't work. I don't remember if Carol Brady worked, but if she didn't, Like, lady, if you don't work, why do you need a housekeeper? Mike Brady was an architect. And, like, wouldn't she... Like, are people... How did they afford that? And I always think, like, Mike was a widower. I don't know if Carol Brady was divorced or a widower, but maybe they had some kind of child support payments or life insurance. I don't know. That's not... That's not Jeff's question. Sorry. It's how do we keep them accountable? Well, first and foremost, you as the husband need to go in there and keep your wife accountable. If she's not doing those things, you need to tell her she needs to do them. That will go over like a lead balloon. Now, somewhere out there is a woman so righteous and holy. She is. Her middle name is Proverbs 31. That when her husband goes to keep her accountable, she'll say, Oh, husband... You are correct. Please forgive me. I'll get right on it. Somewhere out there. (laughs) I'm sure there's one. But you're probably going to get some pushback. And this is where honor, shame, culture comes into play. The biblical culture was an honor-shame culture, and a Christian culture should be an honor-shame culture. We do not live in an honor-shame culture anymore, we have UBU, body positivity, I'm okay, you're okay, whatever happened to shame. But do you, do you see the context of these Bible verses? It's the older women telling the younger women, you need to be doing this. It is respected elders telling young women, you should be ashamed for not keeping a better house. And how many young women resent a judgmental mother-in-law for telling her, well, you should be doing this, but I got to tell you, as frustrating as it is, nine out of ten times your mother-in-law is right. 
A 10 out of 10 times, it's annoying. But 9 out of 10 times, she's right. So really, the younger women, if, if you're a man in church, if you're a Christian man, and your Christian wife is not getting it done at home, she's not managing the household well, now you, you, you got to do your part too. You're out working. You're disciplining the kids. Whatever happened to when your dad gets home, he's going to spank you. All right? You, you got to get home and spank him, right? She, she's not going to do it because you can hit harder. This, this show, can you imagine like this show to somebody who's not a conservative Baptist who's just sitting there listening to this? They're, they're a gag. Like, oh my gosh, they're whipping kids. Oh my gosh, the woman is expected to, to fold the clothes. I mean, they're, they're a gag, I tell you. The modern, I know modern women wouldn't listen to this show. Modern feminist women. But th- hey, this is just Christian Bible man and woman life, guys. But sometimes I have to sit here and think like, wow, this show sounds so throwback and it shouldn't. What do you do, oh husband, when your wife ain't getting it done and you've tried to hold her accountable and she's rebuffed you church discipline you take two or three with you who do you take you go to the old ladies at church I guess in our context probably your Sunday school teacher's wife that's who I would go like if somebody if if I had a problem with my wife and she wasn't getting the lady stuff done I would go to my Sunday school teacher's wife and say hey can you pull my wife aside she won't listen to me. That's what I would do. Because the older women are supposed to be coaching up and training those younger women not to be shameful housekeepers. And sort of that's like the second step. If if it doesn't go well when you try to keep your wife accountable, Jeff, and you have to bring in another party, trust in the, the shaming of older women. If there was a Marvel Marvel superhero called Old Woman, her superpower would be shaming younger women. And listen, if you're not keeping a well-managed house, to find out however you want to be, whether it be tidiness, listen, my house is not going to be tidy. I have six kids under, under 10. My house just isn't going to be tidy, but it needs to be sanitary. And yes, I have to have a, I have to have a maid come once or twice a month. I don't I don't I don't fault my wife for that. It's a lot to manage. You could call it tidiness of your house. You could call it I mean this is an all or above type thing. You could call it the management of your finances. Do you go to the grocery store husbands? Like to shop shop. Like I go to the grocery store every once in a while. Like I oh I gotta get dog food. Let me go to the grocery store. Oh I need sunscreen. Let me go to the grocery store. But I'm talking about is your wife out Spending all your money at the grocery store, like maybe she should have spent three hundred on groceries instead of four hundred. Little things like that. Uh, spend above your means. Maybe she went out to eat on the way to the grocery store, and she should have ate at home. I mean, little stuff like that. And maybe you're so rich that it doesn't matter, but most of us aren't. Maybe the kid's hair isn't brushed. Let me tell you what my mother-in-law the other did on Facebook. Did on the other day on Facebook. I went and picked my daughter up at pre-K on one of the days that I was working at home. She goes to a, the pre-K at a local church. And it's a half-day pre-K. And I went and got her. And I was going to go be frugal and eat at home. But when I got to the railroad track that runs through the middle of Cartersville, a train came. And I was like, fine. I'm going to stop and eat at this restaurant because I'm not going to wait on this train. I'm hungry. And I'll be like, great, I'll have a little lunch date with my daughter. I took her picture, and I was an unexpected lunch date with my baby. She's, I think she's two. And my mother-in-law got on there, wears her hair bow and hairbrush, like complaining about my daughter's hair. Nobody did that kid's hair. We barely get, yeah, we got, we got, we got one set of kids to take the elementary school, another set of kids to take to the primary school, and then we're taking her to the... Uh, church pre-K. So people say, why don't you homeschool, Seth? Oh, we got too many kids to homeschool. I don't think we could, I don't think it would be, a, I don't think it would be a feasible class size. And now my wife works. 
I don't like the direction of the public schools any more than you. But that was my mother-in-law saying, like, your baby doesn't have her hair brushed and her bows on properly. How your kids walk around if their hair is brushed and their clothes are on reflects you. It does, mom and dad. Some of you people out there, you husbands... And by the way, this goes both ways. If you're not fulfilling your husbandly duties, your wife needs to go and say, you, you're not doing this and you need, to be, you need to be doing it. And you should respond in a Christian way. Some of you out there, maybe you've had employees at work and your wife is not your employee. And let me put it this way. You have a one you have a one flesh ownership interest in your wife that you don't have in your employees. But if you've ever had an employee at work who's not performing and you pull them out into the performance review, what do you get? Oh, excuse, excuse, excuse. It's this, it's this, it's this. So any of you who who, who are listening, her manager level type people. We've all been in that performance review before where you have an underperforming employee and they're like, well, it's because of this. It's because you're not managing me right. Or somebody else did something. Blah, 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 blah. It can go that way with your wife if you address these things with her. But it needs to be done. So, Jeff, I... Those are the Bible verses. Those are the contexts. That's who I think in the Bible you go to for help there, the older women of the church. And if you're in the wrong, don't worry. Those older women will let you know. So thank you for asking that question, Jeff. I hope this is a problem with somebody else's wife, not yours. (laughs) All right, let's talk about pulpit and pen behind the scenes. I have so much fun things, or so many fun things going on right now. I had this wonderful trip with my son to Birmingham. We stayed in an old house, Airbnb, just me and him. We played cards. We played board games. We went to the Bama game together. I didn't really even care about the soccer games. We won one, lost one, and tied one. But we were really in and competitive with the games that we were in. We we were as good as the other teams, and if we'd have played up to our potential, I think we would have gone to the finals. But it's not like, oh, I drove all the way down here to get creamed at this soccer tournament. That's not the frustration. And frankly, there's 11 kids on that team, 10 or 11, and my kid's the 11th best guy, in the coach's eyes at least. So he's not getting a lot of minutes. But that was okay for me. I just had a great time with my son. And uh, I've got a fall break trip coming up in a week. I guess the soccer academy thinks we're made of money and they have scheduled us to go to Jekyll Island. And rather than just say, no, we're not going, what are you going to do about it? I thought, you know, you know what, let's go. And then we'll go to St. Augustine for a little fall break family vacation. So I'm looking forward to that family time. So I got, I got a lot of fun personal stuff going on. I'm coaching my soccer team. We had an epic you know, like white knuckle, we're all exhausted, I got no subs, Give, reach down and get every last inch to win. We had that kind of game Sunday. So we got all that going on. I got work, as always. I've got my second job as the neighborhood accountant. So, I mean, I don't have as much time as I'd like to do pulpit and pin stuff, but I have two major, uh, major for me, investigations going on into pastors you would know about if I mentioned them to you. Church members calling me and saying we have unqualified abusive leadership. And it's got to be real deal abusive unqualified leadership for me to look into it. I ain't Julie Roy's. I'm not going to say leadership is abusive if the pastor has a house near the beach. Or right here. Has book deals. You know, I ain't Julie Roy's. So that's going to take time. But if you guys have ever wondered, how do these articles come out? If you looked at our articles, say, on Clayton Jennings, on Greg Locke, on Jeff Durbin, on Ravi Zacharias. Not just 
so-and-so, you know, not just Stephen Furtick said something stupid. Here's a, here's a tweet. I'm talking about things that where the facts are in question. How does that get done? It's investigative reporting. Now, I am not an investigative reporter by trade. I'm a CPA. And sort of as a CPA, it's my job to attest to things and try and verify things. So there is some overlap. But when I get a report, like I did, uh, what was it, the Jeff Durbin story I did, people are recorded here, of Jeff Durbin, Jeff Durbin recording people who repented it in his church and then holding those recordings over their heads later if additional conflict came up. Do I just say, hey, somebody said this, and I know Jeff Durbin's bad, so let me print it. Because when somebody writes me, I already know the person's bad. Like if somebody said, hey, Perry Noble's doing this, I mean, he probably is. Because I know Perry Noble's bad. I can tell without any church member coming to me and say, Perry Noble did this. I, mean, I know Perry Noble's bad. I've heard his sermons. So when somebody came to me and said, Jeff Durbin's doing this, this was a long time ago. Of course I know Jeff Durbin's bad. I, I, he's a, he's a post-mill theonomist you know, out there with his beer fundraisers and his tattoos, like, look, I, I can tell, like this guy. I know, I, I can just tell. But I'm not going to go just, well, let me just print everything this person said. So what I'm in the process of doing for two stories right now are reaching out to pastors who are probably in the wrong. And trying to get their side of it. Now, what they're not going to do, because I know this from experience, is say, oh yeah, let me talk to you, let me tell you all about it. I, they're either not going to call me back, or they're going to say, well, I'm, I'm just not comfortable talking with you about it. Okay, that's my due diligence. I've done it. So for those of you who don't know, when an article comes up on Pulpit and Pen, the due diligence is done. I call around and ask for witnesses. If somebody calls and tells me and says, well, Pastor so-and-so said this. Here, this, this is really and truly, if you're Facebook friends with me, you've seen this. I believe it. I believe it 100%. One of the pastors I'm investigating at one of these churches that sort of rolls over people, he was talking about missions giving, and the pastor said to his senior leadership team, I could fart into the microphone and people would give and the mission would grow. I don't think people can make that up. That's some egotistical pastor. Am I going to print that at pulpit and pen without calling the people, calling a couple people first? No. So when you get one of these, you might call them expose articles about a very popular church and how they're treating people and how it's unbiblical. Yeah, the theological opinion comes from the Bible of how you apply the facts, but the facts have to be gathered. Interviews have to be done. Information has to be verified. And I'll give you a great example. My, one, some of my work on James Merritt. I, I, I had a guy. We, we, we've done a video. It's out there now. Uh, James Merritt, an assault on decency. And my friend Scott Morgan, the FCA missionary, he saw me writing articles about Johnny Hunt and James Merritt and what we do at Pulpit and Pen, and Scott Morgan's a big Calvinist, so of course he loves Pulpit and Pen and all the Calvinist screed blogs out there. And he, he didn't know, he's, one, he's a good friend of mine now, but I didn't know him from Adam, and he called me, he said, I had this story about how James Merritt treated people. I believed him, but I couldn't report it until I called James Merritt, who didn't call me back. Or tried to talk from other people from the church. Ultimately, what we did after I got to know Scott is he just gave his own first-person perspective, and it's up to the it's up to the listener or to the reader. Well, you can you can believe the account of this longtime staff pastor or not about this mega man. You know, you can believe it or not, but this is how the mega man treats people. So. That is some of the behind-the-scenes work that's done at Pulpit and Pen when you're talking about these big shots who walk all over people. I actually reach out to the big shots. 
I have to make some phone calls. I have to make some character references. If one person tells me a story, I go to the other person and I have them tell me the same story. I do this with my kids too. Oh, who who spilled the Cheerios? Tell me about it. I'm going to ask them all. Because, listen, people misremember things. People are angry. Listen, you can't just take every story, if you're a pulpit and pen, and I am, I own it. First of all, I don't have time to take every story that comes my way. I want to because I want to help everybody who comes to me for help. Sometimes people come for me to help, and I'm like, well, listen, your pastor's in the wrong, but you have a 30-member church. Like, that's important to you, and you need to get that straight, but what's Pulpit and Pen going to do about it? There's no greater influence of this church out there in greater evangelicalism. So there's that, and there's sometimes like, well, maybe maybe you're just a spiteful person. Maybe you got kicked out of church for a reason. Maybe they shouldn't have listened to you. Guys, being a pastor is hard. You have all these stiff-necked people show up to your church. There's conflict, and people want to take over. Everybody who writes into me is not into the, into the right. So you have to make that assessment. Number one, is this quote-unquote newsworthy? Everything's worthy before God about how you love your neighbor and how you love a church member, but is it newsworthy? Then I've got a limited amount of time. Should I pick this up or should I pass it off to somebody else? I told somebody the other day, I said, I think I'm the person for this story because I have the theological conservative beliefs. But if you want somebody who has time to deal with it, you can send it to Julie Royce. Because she'll have time to deal with it. But then people aren't going to trust her reporting. Certain people aren't because she's moderate. How about I say that? And that's what I say. I'm like, I'm not trying to scoop anybody. Somebody wrote me today like, well, local news is interested on this too. Well, fine, give it to him. Don't hold off on my account. I'm not trying to scoop anybody. In fact, I told the guy, I said, good if local news is interested. Because when local news does the story, that means a professional journalist has done the verification work, and then I can report on top of it and give the theological take. And then my wider audience who cares about this stuff is going to read it. And listen, God, I'm going to tell you this. When I wrote the article, Jeff Durbin, people are recorded here. Did that shut down Apologia Church and Jeff Durbin? Did Jeff Durbin stop recording people? No. People still went there. When I wrote the article, about, it was recently about Steve Lockhart hosting Johnny Hunt for a conference and how they're you know thick as thieves. Is that going to stop people from going to Steve Lockhart and Johnny Hunt? No. But what does it do? It creates an archive where people who do end up at those churches can search and say, hey, the same thing is I'm here under these people and I need to leave, or I'm at a different church and sort of the same thing's happening to me. But it has to be from a trusted source. It can't just be gossip. Because listen, this is a journalism thing. You're dealing with people's lives, reputations, and livelihoods here. Not just your own reputation, but the reputation, lives, and livelihoods of others, and ultimately their wife and their kids. Now, from a biblical perspective, somebody's going to say, well, you have to have two or three witnesses uh, to accuse an elder of anything. And to that I say, at Fellowship Baptist Church of Sydney, Montana, I do. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, accuse Caleb Snodgrass, who's the elder there, of something, I'm not going to do it without two or three witnesses. That's my local church. I am a member there. If a church that I'm not a member of, it's a nice guideline for two or three witnesses, but I don't have to have that. And let me do a reductio ad absurdum for you. If you're a policeman and someone comes to you and says, Pastor so-and-so at this church you don't go to has, has having sex with a minor in the youth group, you don't say, well, I'm sorry, I have to have two or three witnesses, ma'am. No, you, you receive the accusation and you do an investigation. Because that's the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate is not bound by ecclesiology. Well, first of all, the civil magistrate is bound by all of God's laws. And I'm not a theonomist because morality and and ethics are ultimately grounded in divine command theory. But 
people will say, all right, there's the church authority and the civil authority, and those things are different. Raising my hand, yes, I'm a Baptist. I know that. Despite all the debates about Christian nationalism out there, that's like Baptist 101, that the civil authority, the civil magistrates differ from the church authority. So yes, indeed, that policeman, in my example, is a civil authority who's not limited by that ecclesiastical authority or rules. And guess what? I'm a Baptist, and since I'm not a member of that church, neither am I. It's not my church. I can't enact church discipline on that person. I have no authority to do it. Now, whether a member of that church wants to receive my report or not, that's up to them. So, well, i got to have two or three against this pastor. And by the way, usually when I do these things, it's two or three. But I'm going to tell you it starts with one. When Melissa Locke disappeared from Mount Juliet in Greg Locke's initial thing, I had one witness. One Started listening to her. You start publishing a story because it sounds legit. And here come the other ones. And it's sort of like the Harvey Weinstein thing. Finally, like Harvey Weinstein is out, you know, raping everybody. Well, like Antoine Dotson, they raping everybody up in here, or sexually pressed. I don't know if he raped anybody. He got convicted of sexual assault or something, but it was bad. It took one girl to come out and say, he's doing this. And then everybody was like, yeah, he is. He did it to me too. Me too, me too. That's the me too thing. It takes that one person to speak out. Maybe their story is only 70-80% legit or true. They can misremember something. People get their facts wrong. But once you get that 70-80% out there and you do your due diligence, other people are going to come. And that's a lot of how the pulpit and pen investigation works. It's just one guy finding 15 minutes here and there to just listen to somebody's story, put it together, and let the reader decide. So, one day... Hopefully soon, if these investigations pan out, once I start doing the work, I'll do some podcasts about what I'm doing in specifics. But for now, I've got one story that's very nascent that I think has promise. That's a really bad way to say it. Cause what does it mean? It has promise to, to cast dispersion on a very popular pastor. That's, that's promise? No, like it's, that's a reproach on the church, but it's not a reproach on me for reporting it. It's a reproach on him for calling himself a pastor and acting like that. And I had some other documents today about another big-time pastor. And you know, I'm going to tell you this. Nearly 100% of the time, when these stories come across my desk, nearly 100% of the time, there's an unbiblical ecclesiology. There's a church where the members don't really have a vote. There's a church managed by a cult of personality. Nearly 100% of the time. Nearly 100% of the time, it's a church founded by the pastor. Not spun off from another church where they planted a church. It's sort of like some dude's entrepreneurial little business. And always the end result is, I kind of let the people are talking to me. I'm like, well, why are you even going to church here? Why'd you, you know, what were you thinking? So that's how, that's some behind the scenes. Uh, pay attention to the man behind the curtain. That's some behind the scenes stuff for what's going on at Pulpit and Pen. Even though I hadn't been churning out a lot of articles lately, I try to do one a week, but I just. It was Saturday, Friday, drove to Birmingham. Saturday, Soccer tournament all day. Bama game in the evening. Sunday, up at 6 a.m., church at 8 a.m. Soccer game at 9.50. You godless heathens scheduling soccer games at 9.50 on a Sunday. And when they scheduled that at 9.50 on Sunday, they did not know that there was a decent Baptist church three minutes away with an 8 a.m. service. I'm glad there was, or I'd have had to drive to Birmingham for two soccer games instead of three. And then what do we do after that? Drove home. Then coach another soccer game because the godless heathens are, heathens are scheduling more Sunday soccer games. And, you know, then go to bed. Monday through Friday is a work day. Right. 
barely find time to upload the podcast. But Pullpen Pen is still out there doing its work. Hey, if anybody wants to help me for free, because there's no money involved in it, uh, if anybody out there wants to help me for free be a discernment investigative reporter, SethDunn88 at gmail.com. SethDunn88 at gmail.com. And with that, I will end today's show. I'm going to stop at home real quick before I go to the soccer fields. Because my Amazon brand $20 jeans ripped today while I was at work, I am not too fat for them. They're just cheap jeans. And that's where I am in life. John there in California, John up there in Canada thinks like, oh, Seth's wearing alligator shirts. I ain't bought an alligator shirt since the day I had my first kid. And now I'm wearing, what brand jeans? Calvin Klein? No. Are they Gap? No. American Eagle? No. Amazon. Amazon Essentials or Amazon Basics brand jeans. And I want to go buy me some more cheap $20 jeans. What do I care? And the dad bought. I've been married forever now. It's probably better for me not to look attractive. I don't want women coming on to me. I have to break their hearts. Tell them I'm married. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Remember, as always, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. God bless you, and Lord willing, I'll be back with you again on Thursday. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.